Do you know Google Summer of Code? It's a time of year when students can contribute to open source software by developing and adding much needed functionalities to the open source package of their choice. And Dimitri Pananos did just that. He did it in 2019 with PyMC3, for which he developed the API for ordinary differential equations. In this episode, he'll tell us why and how he did that, what he learned from the experience, and what the strengths and weaknesses of the API are in his opinion. Dimitri is a PhD candidate in biostatistics at Western University in Ontario, Canada. His research interests surround machine learning and Bayesian statistics for personalized medicine. He earned his master's in applied mathematics from the University of Waterloo and is a firm believer in open science, interdisciplinary collaboration, and reproducible research. Other than that, he loves plotting data and drinking IPA beer. Well, who doesn't? This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode. 12, recorded January 31, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.anvil.app. That's learnbasestats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesi and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Less a Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes. Dimitri Pananos, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here. I can hear like the intro song playing right now. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I love that song too. And thank you for uh, taking the time. It's great to have you uh, on the show. I'm always happy to talk to a biostatistician who uses Bayesian tools. Oh yeah, not a problem. Big fan of the show. So happy to be here. Thanks. Maybe we can dive in and talk about your uh, background to start things off. I know you started by applied mathematics and now you're doing a PhD in biostatistics. So I wonder what's the story behind that. And maybe you can define all also biostatistics for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So let's start at sort of like the beginning. I did my bachelor's and my master's in applied mathematics. And applied math is sort of like this field of math that concerns the application of mathematical tools to problems in science. And so if you like take an applied math class, you'll usually see things like differential equations, infinite series, sort of like the tools that you would use in mathematical physics in the early 20th century. So I did that. And then I started working in industry as a data analyst, where my job was mostly analyzing what I would come to know as A-B tests. And I was really bad at that because I failed one of the probability courses I took in undergrad. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, really, really. And, That's uh, ironic. <laughs> yeah, super ironic. And I tell people that and they're always like, you did what? And now you're doing what? <laughs> so in any case, so I was working as this data analyst. I was doing a lot of, lot of experiments and I just didn't really know how to analyze these experiments properly. And it seemed like nobody else on my team really knew how to do that either. At the same time, I was like really not engaged with the work. And, and was really missing a lot of math. So it was just a perfect storm for me to go and do a PhD. And it just so happened that the person that I wanted to work with had a cross appointment to the biostatistics department. So I thought, okay, well, I can go back and do some more math. I can also learn how to properly analyze the experiments that were 
are running here in industry and get a PhD out of it. So that's how that happened in the transition from applied math to biostats. And for listeners out there who don't really know what biostats is, biostatistics is basically a subfield of statistics, which is concerned with statistical inference and statistical methodologies for problems in medicine and health. So we're usually concerned with things like causal inference and randomized control trials and uh, all of these statistics that you would see in sort of a paper in a medical journal. That's at least my definition. I'm sure that listeners will probably erupt in disagreement after hearing that, but that's what I'm going to tell you if you ask me. That's really interesting. So you worked in industry like for how much time? Not very long at all, actually, probably between six and nine months. It was just long enough for me to realize that I didn't know enough and also long enough for me to realize that I probably didn't like what I was doing. Yeah. And then you had the opportunity of getting back into academia. Did you have to do the master's all over again? Or did you have the opportunity to get directly into the PhD program? Yeah, I was actually very lucky in that I didn't have to apply to a master's program and then transfer into the PhD. I sort of applied as a PhD student and, uh, and was accepted as a PhD student. So I sort of started day one as a PhD. Uh, yeah. Which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just means that yeah. I didn't have to like do a lot of the same stuff over again. So yeah, it was good. Yeah. How many years now have you been in PhD? Yeah, that's the right question to ask. People usually ask like, how much longer do you have? And that's <laughs> not the right question. So I've been, this is, I'm probably half a year into my third year. So I've been doing this for two and a half years. Okay. Are you still uh, thinking about which papers you want to write about for your thesis or is it pretty defined now? Sometimes it really varies between PhD people. I think I have some friends who know exactly what they want to write about and they, they're in the middle of writing those papers. And I'm still in this period of thinking, okay, you know, what would be interesting that serves both what I'm interested in and then what I can actually publish? Is it like in economics, for instance, where you have to write three papers for uh, your whole thesis, or is it like a big book of uh, hundreds of pages? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. I think you can write a PhD in both ways. I'm really going to try to go for the three paper route where I just like write three papers and then I just like staple them together in, in between a, an introduction and a conclusion. And then I'll call that a PhD thesis. Which is not uh, particularly easier for uh, listeners out there who don't know the way academia works. Like writing a paper takes a very long time, even though what you see in the end is like between 20 and 60 pages. People usually figure out it, it takes like six months tops. Uh, usually it's longer, right? Yeah. And the story changes along the way too. You might think you might have a really good theory about something happens, but then you run into a problem numerically or you're having trouble implementing something or you discover something newer and interesting that you want to talk about instead. And so the story evolves and, and sort of like the hard part is not the math and it's not really the writing. I, I feel like the hard part is the focus, the focusing on one thing and writing that. Yeah. And maybe also like, uh, do you have some or did you have some moments where you had a very nice idea that you liked and the data just didn't agree with you? And so in that case, you have to go back to the drawing board and, and start all over again. And sometimes that can be kind of depressing for people. Yeah, that happens a lot. Like you have this like very grand idea of the story you want to tell and sort of the models you want to build and explore. And when you get the data and you try fitting these models, your model doesn't converge for some reason. Maybe you get lots of divergences or maybe like, you know, your chains aren't mixing well. And so you have to go back and say, okay, well, maybe my model is too complex or maybe I've just misunderstood the data generating process. So you have to sort of like go back and say, okay, you know, where did I go wrong? 
you really talk like a uh, Bayesian uh, talking about uh, model not fitting divergences or a data generating process. Usually it's something that tells you uh, someone is using the Bayesian framework. That's good to know that I've like internalized this philosophy. I've worked very hard to be a Bayesian and I'm still working hard at being a Bayesian. Like it's not easy. So thanks. That means a lot. <laughs> You're welcome. Actually, we're going to get back to that later, but just to wrap things up about uh, general understanding of biostatistics, can you maybe tell us why research in biostatistics is so important and maybe if there are common myths or misperceptions in the public about it? Sure. So I think Research in biostatistics is really important because when you do an experiment on something like a new medication or a medical intervention or some sort of lifestyle choice that you think has health impacts, the methods about which you go about assessing that causal relationship or measuring that association are really critical because at the end of the day, when a physician is sort of digesting this information, what they're really going to look at is the strength of the relationship, right? And so they don't care about the models per se. They just care about, for instance, how much longer you'll live or how much more likely you are to die or something. That's pretty morbid. But why is it important? Because I feel like a lot of the inferences we make hinge on the methodology from the biostatisticians. I don't think there's a lot of myths out there in the public per se. Like, I think if you just picked someone off off sidewalk and say like, you know, what do you think about biostatistics? They'd really struggle. But I think there are a lot of myths in the medical community and in the research community about statistical methods in general. I think a lot of people believe that scientific thought and statistical thought can sort of be automated. I like to tweet out that statistics is not an algorithmic truth generating process. And I think a lot of people believe that. I see a lot of people do stuff like stepwise regression and then And they infer sort of effect sizes from that model, even though that's not appropriate. So I think one of the biggest myths out there is that statistics is an algorithmic truth generating process. And it's it's really not. You have to give very careful and detailed thought about what it is you're doing, because it's very easy to make a misstep. I think there are a bunch of other smaller myths out there. One myth I really like to talk about is if you get a p-value greater than 0.05, then that means that like your intervention or your drug had no effect. And I think some of the people I've follow on Twitter feel very strongly about that as well. So I think those are the biggest two, right? That statistics is an algorithmic truth generating process and that inference is basically a yes, no procedure. Yeah, because what you mean by that, the last point is that it's not because your p-value is above 0.05 that there is no effect. Yeah, yeah. What's the saying that people say? The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Right. So it's not the same. Um, can I talk about p-values on a Bayesian podcast? Is that allowed? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I find that interesting to contrast also both methods and, and see where one can be more useful than the other. I think if I remember correctly, uh, Richard McEnroth talks about something like that in his course. It's like, uh, it's not because your p-value is above 0.05 that there is no effect because it can mean that uh, there is a big uncertainty on the effect and maybe your distribution is centered around zero but your credibility intervals can be very wide and so that can mean that your effect can be very negative or very positive but can be centered on zero right yeah that's exactly right you know some people will see a p-value greater than 0.05 but they ignore the fact that like you said that there's huge uncertainty and, and actually that a majority of the effects consistent with the data are actually in favor of the the intervention 
question. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I find that very, very interesting and a, a nice way to think about potential problems, not even just about the p-value, but when you take just a one point estimate, then you reduce completely your uncertainty about these parameters. And then you can get into big trouble if you don't look at the uncertainty of the parameters you're trying to estimate. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm guessing that you're using computers to help you with that. At least I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very much so, yes. <laughs> and so I'm wondering uh, if you have a favorite programming language and what's your technical stack in a more general sense? Yeah, okay. That's a good question. I always like to say that like Python and R are my like left and right hands. So like everything I can do with my right hand, I can do with my left hand just a little bit worse. So Python is my right hand and everything I can do in Python, I can do in R, but just maybe a little slower and a little sloppier. So those are probably my favorite two in my stack. Does Stan count as a programming language? Oh, yeah. I think it even is a programming language according to GitHub, you know. Okay, yeah, then I would probably count Stan in my stack, I suppose. But I'm not really like a super techie guy. I like coding, but it very much is a, a tool for me um, rather than sort of the be all end all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not your identity. It's just a tool to get to where you want to go to. Exactly. Yeah. It's the tool that allows me to see math come to life, really. And, and math is the big thing for me. Actually, when did you learn to code? Was it before your PhD, before getting even into your data analyst uh, position? Yeah, it, it was shortly before that. So I took a numerical analysis class, which is basically like coding for applied math. Right. And I had to learn MATLAB in that course, which was like a really bad introduction to programming. But I really liked it. I, there was something about it that felt very cool. And that allowed me to like do and see the math come to life. So I took that in like early 2013. And then the next academic year, I took a course on Python because I thought it was pretty cool. And that's where I like learned about machine learning and stuff. So how did I get into to coding against my own will? But it, it turned out for the best. Yeah, yeah. Because I see now that you have a, a lot of uh, coding projects and experiences. So yeah, all my projects are sort of like half baked, you know what I mean? But they're fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I really relate to this idea of really seeing uh, math or statistics or probabilities come to life through your code and then just getting the graph, exactly the graph that you want to is quite amazing. I remember when I started learning coding, the idea of automating boring stuff was so appealing to me, you know, like just writing a small program to automate something that I had to do by hand in an Excel spreadsheet was so great. I was like, man, this is awesome. I I do that every day now. Yeah, right. Like I remember having that same feeling too and being like, oh man, I don't ever have to like write out the numerical solution to a differential equation by hand ever again. I can just, you know, write this program and it does it for me. That's like a really powerful and like really great feeling to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, uh, since we're uh, remembering the past, do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods per se? And maybe why do you still use them today? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, such a good question. So I, I think the first time I heard Bayesian statistics, it was probably on a Pi Data video on YouTube. And I'm sure somebody, although I can't remember who, was talking about Pi MC3. And so I thought, okay, that's kind of neat. I didn't know that you could sort of do that. And then as I started to learn more and more about machine learning, I picked up 
Chris Bishop's Pattern Recognition and Machine Learning. And in that book, he really motivates a lot of the algorithms in a Bayesian sense. So that's where I learned about conjugate priors and the likelihood and the posterior predictive and stuff like that. But I didn't really get into really doing Bayesian statistics until maybe the summer of 2018, where I was talking about, you know, what sorts of things I might want to do for my PhD. And, you know, we had this idea of this one project and it just really screamed Bayesian at us because we had really good prior information and good theory about this problem and we wanted to sort of model it. And so I heard of Bayes very early, but didn't really start learning about it until much later. The reason I keep using Bayesian statistics is like, it just feels like really natural, you know? Like it really forces you to think about your problem. I really like that. I really like thinking really deeply and criticizing my model. And I really love the ability to make adjustments in my model where I see fit. That's something that your frequentists and frequentist methods just doesn't provide you. Like for instance, if I wanted to do like a linear regression, but I thought that the variance of the outcome had a specific way, it's not like a specific pattern or a curve. Like it's not immediately evident how I might do that. And by learning Bayesian statistics, it's, it's like very, very clear to me how that might be implemented, let's say. Yeah, that's very interesting what you're talking about. I have the same feeling when I started learning Bayesian stats. Uh, you must write priors and so you have to think about what you think before seeing the data. And so you have to think about the data generating process. That's how you also can bridge the gap with causal inference because in a way you kind of have to have a graph, a causal model in your head and on your paper before writing and coding your model. Yeah, yeah. I'm not an expert on causal inference by any means, but I see a lot of similarities between sort of like these Bayes nets that you might draw where you say, okay, you know, I draw a parameter theta and then that is used to draw a like a data Y. And you see a lot of similarities between that and a directed acyclic graph that you see in causal inference. So... Yeah, exactly. I'm reading Judea Pearl's Book of Why right now. And yeah, he talks exactly about that, about how he actually ended up studying causality because he first discovered Bayesian statistics and then worked a lot on Bayesian networks. That work led him to work more specifically on causality and directed acyclic graphs and so on. It's a a very interesting read. Yeah. Okay. So you'd recommend it? I've not finished it yet, but from my sample for now, (laughs) yeah, my prior you're really good on that on that book i would definitely okay great okay, okay. now i have to go pick it up great <laughs> <laughs> yeah unless the end of the book is really disappointing <laughs> I, I would say that the book is really great and I, i'd recommend it even before finishing <laughs> that's very interesting and actually i have a, a question I, i often ask my academic guests i don't know if this question only interests me or also interests the listeners i like it so uh, i ask it to every academic guest but actually how widespread or her accepted our Bayesian methods in your field and if you want to ask provocative questions it would be like how hard it is to find co-authors and and publish papers that don't revolve around p-values that's actually such a good and topical question and i think the answer is as it always is that it depends and in biostatistics i know that there is 
big push towards Bayesianism. There's a lot of work on, let's say, Bayesian RCTs or randomized control trials. So in that sense, it's sort of bubbling up to the surface, but the the sort of the default really is frequentism. It's very difficult, at least in my institution, to find Bayesian co-authors. I think that I'm the only Bayesian in my department, and I know one other Bayesian professor, so we're a very rare breed. Yeah. And so it can be very difficult to to sort of publish a paper with a Bayesian method, in my experience, at least, if you don't put it in the right place. Um, that being said, though, I mean, when I've been working with physicians, they've actually been like really receptive to not using p-values. I think people are like aware that there are some troubling aspects of the way statistics is presently done. And I think that they're open to something new, whether or not that's Bayesianism is still to be determined, but there's definitely the, the want there for something different. Yeah. Plus it resonates with actually something that Chris Fonsbeck said on the podcast and on the second episode where he said exactly what you said, that uh, when he worked with physicians, they actually were very interested in Bayesian posterity distributions because most of the times it's easier to interpret. I mean, having a probability instead of a p-value is easier to interpret and more intuitive to people that are not statisticians. They already know about, uh, you know, probabilities. And so it relates also to what you said earlier about the fact that uh, Bayesian inference tends to be more intuitive most of the time to interpret. I mean, you just have to look at uh, compatibility intervals versus confidence intervals in, in frequency analysis. Yeah. I mean, when I talk about Bayesianism with a lot of my colleagues or, or when I talk about statistics in general, sometimes I, I catch myself using like very confusing phrasing. So like if you were to talk about what a p-value is, right, it's the probability of seeing an effect at least as extreme or more extreme as what you saw. It's very confusing <laughs> linguistically. Yeah, yeah. People just have like an innate understanding of what probability is and they sort of use the Bayesian notion of probability in day-to-day -day life. It, you know, if you ask somebody like, oh, scale zero to 10, like how likely are you to come to this party tonight? And they say eight out of 10. That's a probability. I think it's much more ingrained in people. And I think we just have to work a little harder to make that come out. That's all. Yeah, exactly. Of course, it doesn't solve everything in the sense that we do have an intuitive sense of probability, but it can be quite flawed, you know, for very low or very high probabilities. I think it's uh, Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, I love that book. It's so great. <laughs> I think in the book, he talks about the fact that uh, people tend to overestimate very low probabilities and to underestimate very high probabilities. So, of course, when you're doing an analysis and you get this type, of probabilities, then you have to be a little more thoughtful about how you're going to communicate about this analysis, like maybe using some special plots and focusing on one part of the posterior space. But all in all, it's usually more intuitive to people. The funny thing is that people usually interpret frequentist confidence intervals if they were Asian compatibility intervals. But it's time now to dive into what you did for PyMC because you said that you use Stan a lot for your probabilistic programming uh, projects, but I know you also use uh, PyMC. So as I said in the introduction, you worked on, on the API for uh, ordinary differential equation for PyMC. So yeah, maybe what can you tell us about that, uh, about the design, the choices, the difficulties you encountered? I have a lot to say about this. This is a uh... How much tape do we have? Because I'm about to go off. <laughs> so when I started my PhD, like one of my goals was that I wanted to contribute to open source software and in like a very tangible and big way. Um, I didn't want to just like make unit tests and fix typos and stuff. And
And so I knew that I had experience with differential equations. And then Thomas Wiecki tweeted something about differential equations in PyMC3. And so I tweeted at him and I said, hey, listen, like this is great. And I would love to contribute this functionality to PyMC3 or PyMC4. Here's the problem. I'm like really bad at being a developer. So do you have any tips? And that spurred a conversation between Dan Simpson, Colin Carroll, and I about reading unit tests and sort of understanding how the, how the library works. And then the PyMC3 developer account tweeted at me and said, have you considered working for Google Summer of Code? In my blog post, I talk about how, you know, anything with the word Google in it is pretty scary to me because it means lots of competition. But you know what? They had a project for differential equation capabilities and I thought, well, you know, there's no harm in applying. So I sort of like threw in my application and I was selected and it was very shocking to hear. And it was a lot different than I sort of expected it to be. The hard part of that entire process was really not the math. The math was actually the most enjoyable task, at least for me. Because I wasn't very good, and in some senses, I'm still not good at open source development and development in general, like that was the steepest learning curve. For instance, I had not known anything about object-oriented programming until that, that summer. So it was a lot of reading about, not about math, but about programming, which was good. I really had um, a good time sort of like learning how I can improve in that area of my work. So far as the differential equation API is concerned, I drew a lot of inspiration from Stan because I used a little bit of their differential equation functionality and, and thought it just felt kind of natural. So I knew that I wanted the user to sort of, you know, pass a vector of parameters or an array of parameters that they wanted to do inference on. And I also know that I wanted to be able to do inference on the initial condition of the, the differential equation. You know, I also knew that I wanted to pass like an array of times to integrate over. But again, like I did not come in with like a roadmap or anything. I, I was very shocked to even learn that I had been selected. So it was a lot of coming up with this stuff on the fly. And I have to give credit to all the PyMC3 devs and my mentor um, who were really instrumental in my success, if you can call it a success. And, and so it was a really great, but very difficult experience experience. I really love this project. So really congrats on, on this. It's really awesome. Uh, I'm a little frustrated because I don't work a lot on ODE, so I don't really have the opportunity to use it right now. So I'm quite jealous of people who do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually so surprised that people are using it like at all. I think there was like one or two questions on the PyMC3 discourse. And I was like, oh crap, like this is not just something that's going to sit and not be used, people are actually interested in it. Yeah, and, and once I saw that, I was like, I really wish that I did it a little differently, you know? I, I sort of like came in with the goal to really push something to master, but if I would go back, what I would do is really focus on just writing something to compute the gradients for HMC efficiently. Because right now, the way the differential equation works is that it works okay for differential equations of one or two dimensions with one or two parameters. But once you give it something realistic, it, it really struggles. And so, yeah, if I could go back, I think I would focus more on building one small part than building a really big thing, but making that one small part work really, really well. But actually, yes, yeah, so the API for ODE is live right now, right? It's in production, as we say. I remember, I think it was released in the 3.8 release of PyMC, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, around uh, maybe late September when that was released, I think. Yeah. So people can use it uh, from the Conda or PyPI uh, repo. Uh, they don't have to be on the master branch of the GitHub uh, repo to, to use this API. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you're listening and you know about differential equations, please go use it and, you know, see where it breaks and how it breaks. And if you have ideas on how to improve it, make a PR. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, please do not feel afraid to say like Dimitri didn't know what he was doing because Dimitri did not know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, well, not totally because uh, <laughs> not totally, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. I'm really not uh, well as well versed in ODE as you are, but uh, to me it seems like a at least very good first uh, step towards uh, having this functionality in AMC. And of course, you can do a perfect job on the on the first uh, try, but uh, it seems like already a very useful feature. So yeah, I think that's a really healthy way to, to look at it. It is really a, a first iteration and, and Rome wasn't built in a day. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how this can be improved and, and sort of how I can contribute to helping that helping that happen. And actually, I wonder why you chose to do that in PyMC, because uh, as you said, you were using Stan. So why did you choose to do that in PyMC and not contribute to Stan or just uh, sticking to Stan? Yeah. So, okay. Let me first talk about like why I use both. Sometimes like I, I think really forcing yourself into like one tool set can be useful because then you learn one tool set very, very well. But sometimes it's easier to do something in one language over the other. And so, you know, I, I tweeted recently about how I've switched between PyMC3 and Stan like three times for a single Yeah, project. I saw that. And, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I keep thinking like, oh wait, no, that'd be easier in Stan. And, and then I think to myself, oh wait, no, that's easier in PyMC3. So why did I do this in PyMC3? Well, mostly because I knew Python and um, I had begun to start to get involved with PyMC3 because I knew a little bit about PyMC3 way before I knew anything about Stan. I had made a few PRs to PyMC3 and saw that it didn't have the differential equation functionality. So I sort of thought like that was my best chance to commit something major and, and sort of meet that goal that I had set for myself. That's interesting. And the last um, thing uh, your story uh, made me think about is how aligned was it with your incentives as a PhD student? I mean, because in research, I guess even more in a PhD, because uh, your time constraint is even bigger. Usually you're incentivized on, well, you have to write uh, papers and you have to publish these papers very well. But mm, at least to the best of my knowledge right now, open source work, uh, at least in the social sciences that I know better, is not really rewarded and not really incentivized. And you told us that you did that during uh, your PhD. So I wonder how it fit into your PhD. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really good question. I think the truth is, is that if I were to like talk to somebody in the department about how I spent that summer, I think they would think that it's sort of neat, but it doesn't add any value to the PhD inherently. Like it might add value insofar as, okay, I made this differential equation API. Oh, and I need to use differential equations in my thesis. So it, it's like helped me, but it doesn't provide anything towards the PhD. But honestly, like I'm okay with that. No, this PhD really is like a personal goal for me. So anything positive that comes out of it is fine by me. You know, not every moment of every day has to be working towards the PhD. So I'm totally fine with the result and, and very happy that it came out the way it did. And, and if it just so happens to be in a counterfactual that had I not done that, I would be farther along in my PhD. I'm not upset by that. Yeah, no, I totally get you. I, I'm a little like that too. Uh, I love uh, going into these uh, personal projects that are related to what I'm doing, but not completely directly, at least in the short term. But I was talking more institutionally because here the incentives don't really are not really aligned in the sense that when you're doing your PhD, at least uh, someone could have told you that uh, it's neat that you did this ODE API, but you didn't have, you know, 
know, to go all the way open source, because then you had to learn about object-oriented programming, you had to learn about testing, etc. because each time you do an open source contribution, it has to fit very thoroughly into the package guidelines. You could have done that just for you and just uh, wrote a little script for a ODE API based on PyMC, and it would have been easier and quicker. And so that's what I meant, you know, by misaligned incentives uh, here. You, when doing a PhD, you don't really have an incentive to open source. Uh, oh, which, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you know what? Like, if you open source it, like, the fact that I worked on open source actually allowed me to gain a lot of skills that I wouldn't have learned were I to just, like, keep it to myself. I hear what you're saying, but, and I think a lot of people think that way, but I think the reality is, is that you get so much more by engaging with open source than, than sort of like leaving it private. I really agree with you, actually. I'm playing a little devil's advocate here. My point is maybe there is a problem with this uh, misalignment of incentives and maybe right. it should be more aligned toward enabling PhD students to contribute more to open source because in the long run, it's better for science when you have more open science in open source uh, tools that are really useful because look at uh, what you did uh, with the ODE API. Now more PhD students will be able to use and to compute uh, differential equations uh, for their papers and to advance science even more. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And yeah, actually, you were talking about that a little but I'm wondering why you picked this subject ordinary differential equation. Why was that interesting in your eyes? And was that related to one of your projects? Yeah, in my master's and in my undergrad, I mean, I worked ex almost exclusively with ordinary differential equations. So they were a very familiar tool to me. So I felt like I had, for that particular project, I had um, a really good background to start. And so I could sort of hit the ground running. I do use differential equations in my PhD research. My research is about um, pharmacokinetics, which is how the body essentially metabolizes a drug. And the way that that's described is through a differential equation. So I thought that it was just like a very nice union of past and present Bayesianism and differential equations. So that's why I was drawn to the project. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And actually, I think it's a good uh, way of thinking because you knew you had to learn a lot about the uh, programming guidelines, uh, open source contribution, object-oriented programming. So having one steady pillar of knowledge, which was the math and your knowledge of differential equations, I think it was better for you instead of having to learn everything, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think if I had to learn like new math, and all of the open source and development stuff, I don't think that I would have had as uh, good a time as I did. Or at least not in just one summer. Exactly. Yeah, it probably would have had to been over like multiple summers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, maybe you can remind listeners of the goal and how Google Summer of Code is organized. Yeah, sure. So on Google Summer of Code, students have essentially four months to work with their mentor to accomplish like a project in open source development. So that first month is where you essentially get to integrate with the community. And so in that first month, I joined the Slack channel for PyMC3 and I started working on very small PRs to fix small bugs so I could sort of get back into the groove of how that worked. And I also started road mapping and looking up the theory for what I would eventually 
actually implement. And then in those last three months, you actually code. So I was, you know, prototyping, I was pushing to GitHub, I was writing unit tests. And at the end of the month or at the end of the summer, if this was part of your roadmap, you get to commit whatever you've done to master. And so you don't regret having spent a lot of time behind your computer instead of uh, enjoying the sun of the summer. <laughs> you say that as if it was mutually exclusive. Like yeah. All of the coding that I did was like on patios. It was at coffee shops. It was a lot of time behind the computer, sure, but it was very freeing because you didn't have to be like at an office. You didn't have to be at a desk. You know, I could write code where I where I thought it was easiest to write. 10 out of 10 would absolutely recommend that anybody thinking about it definitely tries and applies for Google Summer of Code. Awesome. Actually, and uh, what are the requirements for uh, applicants? Do you have to be in a PhD program, in a master's program? Do you have to be a student or? I think the requirement is that you're a student and that you're a full-time student, that you have a little experience with the language that you would eventually be um, working. And I really think that's it. I think Google really sets the bar really low to encourage a lot of people to at least apply and try. Okay. So yeah, if listeners are interested, uh, go ahead. Uh, Dimitri recommends it uh, 10 on 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can give listeners the address of the coffee shops and patios you visited during your uh, Google Summer of Code experience. <laughs> oh, I should have documented that and like made a heat map or something. That would have been good. Yeah, exactly. You know, requirements.txt, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> coffee shop requirements.txt yeah exactly i'll include that in the github everybody <laughs> exactly okay so I, i think what would be interesting now uh be to talk about maybe one of your favorite models or methods do you have one that you're always happy to use and always happy to talk about Yeah, sure. I'll give you two, one differential equation and one Bayesian. The Bayesian model that comes up all the time and that I actually really like to talk about is the hierarchical binomial model. This is the model in like chapter five of Bayesian data analysis. And I feel like it just comes up all the time. And every time it comes up on Stack Exchange or something, like I can't help myself, like I have to answer it. So I really like examining that model for some reason. And in fact, I contributed an example to PyMC3 about how to implement that model in PyMC3. And my favorite differential equation model is definitely the SIR model model, which is a model that can be used to model uh, the spread of infection in a population. So I really like those two for some reason. Every time somebody talks about it, I just, I can't help but listen. And, and Yeah, I know the feeling. And you were talking about a book, Bayesian Data Analysis. Were you talking about the Gelman's book? Yeah, that's the one, BDA3. That's probably what I read to get in. Okay. Yeah, that's... Very interesting to hear about your favorite models. I love that. I have mine too. <laughs> and actually, do you encounter, you know, some common difficulties when you work either with the two types of models you were talking about or just in general with your models and data? What are the most common difficulties you, you encounter and how do you usually solve them? That's a good question. I think the most common difficulties I encounter are probably the same as anybody else does. Like, you know, it's divergences and failure for my chains to mix. You know, maybe my model isn't capturing something about the phenomenon, which I'm modeling very well. You know, if I had to give one piece of advice, you just plot stuff. You know what I mean? Because I can't tell you how many times I've like made a parallel coordinate plot and seen like, oh, oh, the divergences are happening because you know, I forgot to put a prior on the random effects or something, you know what I mean? So I think plotting can be very informative. And luckily, it doesn't matter if you're working in Python or R, there are really great tools to plot the results of your Bayesian model. Well, you usually the plot uh, like your parameters, your posterior uh, parameters from the trace? Yeah, so parallel coordinate plots are, are definitely the ones that I would go to 
first. So you can, you can see how the parameters of your model relate to one another in a sense. And the ability to like highlight in what draw the divergence happened is a very useful tool. Mm. So what you mean by these plots is like, for instance, you would draw the intercept against the slope. It's like a line plot, but in mm. on the x-axis, you would plot parameter values and then connect those in a line. Maybe in the show notes, we can provide a link to what I'm talking about because I'm really bad at this. Yeah, no, that's hard to describe uh, plots uh, on, the, on a podcast, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, putting yeah, you yeah. on the spot here. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, that would be very interesting to put some examples in the, in the show notes. How much time does it take you to find out about these problems? Is it usually quite obvious or do you stumble upon the answer and you have to spend, I don't know, 50 or 60% of your modeling time actually debugging the model? Uh, I think it really varies. Sometimes the cause of the problem is very apparent and you just have to, it's again, just rethinking. Uh, I would say a non-negligible amount, really tough to really track down exactly where problems occur. Sometimes when the problem is bad enough, you might have to reparameterize, And so that takes up a lot of time. So I, I would say that it's a pretty even split, but more often than not, I'm caught in very difficult problems to solve. How many times uh, have you found yourself uh, thinking that you were completely lost and didn't have any clue on the next step to debug the model? <laughs> Honestly, all the time. If you follow me on Twitter, you probably see like me angrily tweet about my model. And yeah, it's more often than not. But I think, was it Michael Betancourt that said something like, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not doing it right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I was actually listening to that before we started this episode. So that's very good advice and very true. Yeah, I love this episode and, and talking with Michael and exactly he was uh, saying yeah, it's normal to fail. Everybody fails uh, and if you don't fail, actually, you don't learn. So I must be learning a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about that in the next time uh, you find yourself completely lost and think that you're, you have to ask someone about your model because you can't see why it fails. Actually, also on the PyMC side, I think on the Stein side also of the uh, platforms have the discourse sites, which are really useful to ask questions about statistics and modeling. It's very interesting to see people ask and answer questions there. Sometimes it can give you hints and answers about your own questions that you didn't even ask on the discourse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great communities, great communities. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think our time is almost up and I, I don't want to take uh, too much of it. So let's talk about the future. What are you working on? What are your projects for the, the months to come? Yeah. So right now I'm still working on some models for my PhD and writing papers for that. In the coming summer, I'm actually going to take a four month break from my PhD. I'm going to go work in industry and see what uh, life on the other side is like. And then hopefully uh, return to the PhD and, and finish that up before uh, finally making my exit out of academia and into industry. Can you talk about what you're going to do in industry? Yeah, I'm going to be working as a data scientist at a bank in a nearby yeah. city. That sounds fun. And is it like usual for people, I don't know, in North America to do these kinds of uh, experience? I think it's actually pretty uncommon. I'm, I'm probably one of maybe two PhDs that I know of who are taking a summer to, to do this. But I think it all depends on what the goal of the individual is. And my goal is not to go into academia, but to go into industry. So I think it's a, a wise choice and, and a much welcome break from the monotony, really. Okay, well, that sounds like a lot of uh, interesting stuff coming your way in, uh, in the coming month. Yeah. 
So before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So the first one is uh, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah. So I was expecting this question and because you sent me the questions like early on and I still don't have a really great answer. I think <laughs> I'm just going to steal Jung Peng's answer and say um, like renewable energy would be one that I would invest in uh, if I had unlimited yeah. time and resources because clean energy uh, and renewable energy are uh, very important especially in the midst of a climate crisis. So that's probably where mm. I would pour my resources. Yeah, that's interesting. Plus, you would get to work with uh, Junping on that, which is, yeah. which is quite nice. <laughs> yeah, I would have a lot to learn from him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love uh, always uh, talking with Junpei because uh, he's an amazing modeler. He knows a lot of things about statistics and Asian uh, models. And he's a, a very nice person and always welcoming. So it's always nice to have an interaction with him. So and the second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, there's so many people who I want to have dinner with. That's the beauty of the question. <laughs> I try, I'd probably go with Euler. Yeah, Euler played a huge part in applied mathematics. Like, everything's named after him. So I'd like to pick his brain. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know that I think that Junpeng actually answered Euler also. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Now I feel like I'm just copying him. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's really funny because I, I really think uh, he answered Euler because I, I think that Euler was uh, from uh, Switzerland. Yeah, I think he was. And, and Jude Peng is living in Switzerland. And so that's also why he chose uh, Euler. Great minds <laughs> think alike, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but this time you, you didn't know it. Exactly. Uh, okay, Dimitri, is there something we didn't uh, talk about that you find uh, interesting to share with listeners? No, or, I think uh, we covered a really great swath of, uh, of topics and uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast I'm a really big fan of the show and um, I hope my episode is uh, half as entertaining as the other ones so thanks a lot honestly I had a great time talking with you I think the episode is going to be awesome and thank you for uh, your kind words about the, the podcast it's always nice to have feedback so Dimitri yeah it was really great uh, talking with you I hope we helped uh, people better understand uh, what biostatisticians do and how Bayesian methods can be used there and maybe we even gave some ideas to listeners for their own projects and I'm sure I'm not the only one to thank you for your work on ordinary differential equations in PyMC3 it will sure be useful to many people. As usual, I put uh, resources and in, in a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. And thank you again, Dimitri, for taking the time and being on this show. Not a problem. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, Fit MC Lars, and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. 
Let's get them on a solid foundation.